Hello and welcome to this, the latest episode of the Evidence-Based Education podcast. This time round, our Director of Education, Stuart Kime, chatted to Robert and Elizabeth Bjork over at UCLA. We put calls out for your questions for them before Christmas, and Stuart collated the best and then put them to Robert and Elizabeth. We hope you find it useful, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, review and share. Um, so it would be great if you could just say um, who you are and what you do um, and also where you do it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm Robert Bjork. I'm Elizabeth Bjork. And we're both uh, in the psychology department at UCLA. We're um, cognitive psychologists. So we do experimental work on uh, human learning and memory. And uh, before that, we're at the University of Michigan, but uh, in any case, uh, we're now at UCLA in Los Angeles. That's great. Oh, and we do most of our work in the laboratory here, our lab here at UCLA, although we do a few things uh, in classrooms as well. Okay. Okay, that's great. Thank you for that. Um, and, and before we get into talking about the specifics of some of the work that, that you have um, done uh, recently and, and over the years, um, what, it would be really interesting just to know what, what motivates you to come to work each day. Well, I think that was an interesting question that you pose. Uh, I would say uh, that we, there are two main things I think from my standpoint, Elizabeth could speak for herself. Uh, I think it partly it's just still curiosity. We have these research questions and you know, there'll be intriguing results or puzzling results and just trying to get clear about things or trying to find out something is very motivating. Hmm. The other thing about it is, um, our position and our lab gives us a chance to work <clears throat> with graduate students, undergrads, <clears throat> excuse me, postdoctoral fellows who are sort of a joy to work with. So right. coming to work is, you know, a high percentage of people drag themselves to work <laughs> and they watch the clock and yeah. hope it's quitting time. But uh, I think it's, uh, quite the opposite in our case, which is uh, wonderful. Sort of eager to get involved in research. There's, of course, onerous parts of our job, but uh, in general, uh, and then now being sort of senior researchers, um, it's in some ways even more fun to work with uh, the younger people. Mm. But I don't know what you want to add to that, Elizabeth. Um. I think you pretty co pretty much covered it. Uh, I think a very highly motivating factor is uh, the interactions that we have with our students and visitors and postdocs, uh, people like you, um, and uh, so that keeps us. Um, you never know when someone's going to ask you a question that you have just not thought about, and it can set you off on a whole new line of research or um, 
or so it's it just stays sort of constantly refreshing yeah that sounds good that sounds like a, uh, a a good way to go about your your work and to uh, have that that sort of strong sense of a draw towards work as opposed to you know feeling that you have to push yourself um, okay so um, when when we spoke previously um, you, you talked about the the focus of your work shifting um, over, over recent years uh, from lab studies to, to more applied work um, and I think before we get into some of the, the kind of meaty details of uh, the specifics of the work that you're doing. It'd be really interesting to know a little bit uh, about why that has happened. Well, it, I think um, the sequence was that in doing basic research, and again, kind of driven by puzzles about how this human learning memory system worked, um, we had a long period of just trying to get at certain answers and somewhere along the line it dawned on us that um, these results really suggested that uh, how we learn and how we teach could be far better that it was what a lot of what we did was based on intuition and standard practices and mm -hmm. that our research had pretty dramatic implications you mean given how we learn? Given how we learn. We could then, yeah. we aren't teaching quite optimally given how the system actually works. And so it's still, when we, our interest in applied research, um, that led us to um, explore some of those questions. I would still say that we do, relatively speaking, we do a pretty small fraction of research that's in the classroom, we collaborate with some people doing that. Um, so it's it's more a uh, matter to kind of consider if these results imply what they seem to apply, then does that mean we should do this or that? And then often instead of exploring that right in the classroom, though Elizabeth's done quite a bit of that, we'll set up actually a laboratory experiment with realistic materials and try to explore it in a lab setting first. Um, it's actually difficult to do research in the schools, yeah. very difficult to uh, get permission and uh, there's all sorts of hurdles. But, um, Even when um, you might have a contact <clears throat> with a teacher who is very eager to try out some of these things mm -hmm. and to uh, and and feel that changing certain things they do would really help their students learn. Uh, it's difficult for them also to um, incorporate these things in uh, sort of the daily classroom activities because they're just there's so many rules and regulations and uh, restrictions on what they can and cannot do on their own. So, hmm. but. Um, yeah, that's that's something that uh, I think is uh, pretty uh, common over here in the, in, in the UK as well. We we see a lot of people who are, um, you know, really enthused by uh, the the research evidence from all kinds of different fields. But then when it comes to uh, you know putting it into into action, actually getting it into their classrooms and doing things in a way that would be faithful 
to uh, to the research evidence and and I suppose uh, kind of doing it in the wild. Um, then all of the you know sort of um, school policies or you know um, uh, regulations and such like then start to put obstacles in the way and um, I think that's that's one of the things that um, I'm most keen to address certainly in the work that we do um, here at EBE is to try to find ways in which you know we can um, stay true to the research evidence but then also be pragmatic about how it works within you know yeah. in the day-to-day -day context of schools which will always have rules and regulations and procedures and and, and habits uh, but it's right. a, a really it's really interesting to say that you're kind of you know thinking in the same way and addressing things in, the, in that in that uh, context yeah we found some uh, we know of some situations where uh, well William Emony and your part of the world mm. uh, has, has been able to incorporate some of these uh, principles, desirable difficulties, and, and seeming to have great success. Yeah. Um, and here in, um, here in the United States, we've had teachers who have gotten, they've already sort of proved themselves as good teachers, and then they have gotten agreements with their principals. Um, if I if I do this and my students still are doing well on the sort of mandatory exams and things that we have to do, uh, can I keep doing them? <laughs> and they've gotten permission to do that. Yeah. And, and in a few cases, they've shown that their students are outperforming the other students. And so then uh, sometimes it spreads that way. Then other teachers will say, well, I want to do what you're yeah, doing. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting, and, and particularly when you can have those the, the demonstration through, um, you know, test scores or, or, or whatever the outcome is that is considered to be valuable um, to students and teachers, then um, right. you know, the, the, the circle is is more easily completed, and the and the value proposition of, uh, you know, whatever the approach or strategy is becomes, I think, much more kind of readily recognised. Um, okay, well. Um, so from, from from the kind of the generalities then of, of how your work has has, has shifted in focus um, to, to this more kind of applied context, um, let, let's turn to um, a, a question that came uh, from Twitter. So we put put out word on Twitter that we were going to do this and, and asked for uh, for questions. Um, and so the one question that, that came to us was uh, from um, Adam Boxer, who asks, um, if my if my students uh, are working on practice questions um, after just learning something brand new, should they have access to answers immediately, or wait and go through answers as a class? So um, let's let's put that kind of move from lab studies to an, an applied setting uh, to to uh, into action. Um, what what do you think in in answer to Adam's question? Well, first of all, it's a good question. Um... And to some degree, it's relevant to ongoing research issue right now, having to do with how much feedback should be delayed. And uh, there isn't an absolutely clear answer to that. It's, it's ongoing. But I would say that um, just thinking of the classroom context, um, I think there are virtues for sure of um, having other students provide feedback, that is to make it interactive. Mm -hmm. uh, anytime you can get students to generate an answer to a question, 
rather than you providing it, mm. uh, the effects will be much longer term. So uh, in a sense, then other students can be helped by answering a question that maybe somebody else couldn't at that moment. Okay and make it more interactive. I mean, if the only choices I think are to do it feedback question by question by question right away versus holding it towards the end, I would think that, that holding it for a later discussion is probably better. Okay. Uh, among other benefits, it introduces spacing and mm. different questions may be related to each other that you can emphasize after you've had all the questions. Um, so in terms of the existing research, it's not a kind of cut and dried matter, but mm. um, I think you always want to, as a teacher, take advantage of the benefits of, of generation. That mm. is, uh, any time you can get students to generate something rather than just giving it to them, you're going to enhance their, their retention of that information. Mm. I think you sometimes have to be um, mm somewhat thoughtful about how you orchestrate this in that if as Bob was just saying if you could have students uh, interact with one another in answering the question you want that's great but you want to make sure that it's not dominated by any one student so mm -hmm. you have to set it up so that each student is being called on and each student is volunteering an answer if you have to give uh, feedback is pretty immediately after each question. I would say then one thing you should do is have, now this would depend on what kind of a question it is, but let's say it's a multiple choice question and they've mm -hmm. decided on what's the correct answer. You then want to make sure that to ask them, All right, why did you pick that? And then that can be an additional, don't just say right or wrong. Mm, yeah. Or don't just say no it wasn't B it was C yeah, yeah you want to get them to go through the process of what it was that made them pick that one versus others and and that will also help the learning experience hmm I've, I've noticed when I've uh, seen teachers try out that that kind of method particularly of um, you know delaying feedback um, and also you know getting uh, students to, to generate those responses and, and I suppose leaving um, a, a space for thinking before giving a definitive yes or no or, or whatever it might be um, that in the kind of in the interim um, students tend not to like it a great deal there's that sort of sense of hang on I gave you the answer I now need to know whether it's right or wrong and and, and um, a sort of sense of discomfort um, but yeah. I guess that's you know, uh, we're starting to get into that, that the territory of um, of a, a desirable difficulty, um, right. and, um, and and that's something that um, I'm really keen to to, to ask you about. Um, One more thing to just to persist a little bit on this question mm -hmm. at the college level, uh, where there might be big lecture. One thing instructors need to learn is not to answer their own questions. So <laughs> somebody at some point. Put a timer on teachers, and, the, and a typical teacher only waits about 20 seconds of awkward silence before. No, much less than 20 maybe seconds. Maybe less. Yeah. That they then answer their own question. Yeah. And, and that can convey to students pretty early on that 
they don't need the answers. So yep. one advice we give young instructors often is just wait them out till they get convinced through this awkward silence <laughs> that you're not going to proceed till somebody tries to answer that question. Mm. So it's it's related to uh, the question you asked, but uh, it has to do with the teacher class dynamics and mm. that you do want them to participate and it's not uh, just a kind of academic thing that you're going to discuss. And, and in your, sorry, in, in your experience of uh, advising young instructors to, you know, uh, keep, keep that awkward silence, is, is this something that you find is kind of, um, you know, e easier said than done? Um, you know, do, do people respond to that and, and you know, take it on board? Because it feels, I know when I've, I've done this, it feels really like, you know, hard work to hold that yeah. silence. And, but it is, the, the, the dynamics are kind of interesting. It, it doesn't take too long for the class to sort of say, oh, wow, he's not gonna go yeah. ahead here, he or she, <laughs> until somebody does something. And then there's kind of a socialization. I've noticed when uh, sometimes with 300 students, um, as the course goes along, a student will raise their hand and ask a question and be sort of comfortable doing it, where, whereas they initially hmm. would have been hesitant with 300 people in the room to speak up. And uh, there's this kind of socialization that needs to happen. Hmm. I've had people, for example, or young instructors, uh, say they resorted to like counting, so I have that ask a question and then they count silently to themselves up to eight or 10 or something. Because uh, otherwise they couldn't control themselves. They would just jump in and answer the question. <laughs> I, I know or, that feeling very well. <laughs> and then I think speaking to Bob's uh, comment about students getting more uh, willing and confident to uh, offer questions, I mean, offer answers to questions. Um, I think you also want to set the tone right at the start that, um, you know, there's not really anything, there's no real, th no real, no stupid questions. I mean, not, don't, you know, <laughs> saying don't ask stupid questions. There is no such thing as a stupid question uh, because mm -hmm. even a question that's sort of off track mm -hmm. can still help you learn, okay, where is it that, uh, I have gotten off on the wrong track here and need to get straightened out. So um, I think you have to set that tone too, that this isn't a judgmental sort of uh, situation where yeah. you're going to be labeled as a dummy or something like that if you yeah. ask questions. That but you've just reminded, you reminded me there of, um, uh, I think it was Jerome Bruner in, uh, in his, what was it, um, uh, his on, on knowing essays for the left hand. And he talks about how um, uh, people should be able to inf experience information, uh, uh, sorry, experience uh, assessment and, and uh, that kind of act of acknowledging whether they know something or don't know something or whatever it might be, um, not as punishment or reward, but as information, you know, and to, exactly. re to remove from it that kind of, um, you know, the, the sort of partisan uh, aspect of, you, you know, you've, you've, you've 
done really, really well in this, or you've done less so, and, and, and that, that kind of affective area, but more simply as a statement of what is or what is not known or understood. Yes, and as a, it can be one of the best opportunities for uh, truly learning. Uh, when you realize I have had this misconception hmm. for a long time or, or about this topic and uh, now I realize uh, that was incorrect hmm. and I, you know, it gives you an opportunity to fix that hmm. or at least broaden your understanding. Hmm. I've even told students that until they've raised their hand and said something dead wrong, they haven't really contributed to the class. <laughs> if they've got a major confusion, it's almost certain that other students do too. I like and, that. Uh, so it's a very big contribution to just raise well, your hand and say something that's uh, yeah. really helped to clarify things. Well, I, I think if I'd been in your class, then I'd have been a major contributor because... <laughs> <laughs> your ability to say wrong things, yeah. It's, it's legendary, believe me. <laughs> um, okay, so... Um, well, let's let's kind of continue to to look into this um, this notion of, of desirable difficulty then of um, you know getting to that point. I've heard I've heard uh, teachers refer to desirable difficulties in different ways. One of which was um, uh, being in the pit. Um, you know that that sort of point of I suppose being um, you know un unsure of. Uh, kind of where to go and how to get there, but knowing that you've got to keep on going in some way or other. So, but let, I want to really kind of go back to the source on this and to say, you know, very simply, what is a desirable difficulty? And then mm. in following that up, um, what, what can teachers do to help students to actually operate it? Um, you know, what I think one of your colleagues has referred to as the, the challenge point. Yes. Uh, so, um, Desirable difficulties share the property that uh, they're manipulations of the conditions of learning that create challenges, hmm. uh, create a sense of difficulty, and appear to be slowing down the learning process. Uh, these are things like varying the conditions of learning or practice rather than keeping them constant or predictable, uh, spacing the opportunities for repeated study sessions or interleaving rather than blocking the practice on separate things to learn, using okay. tests rather than presentations. All of these things have an immediate consequence of creating not only a sense of difficulty, but sometimes slowing down uh, apparent learning based on current performance. And I know you had a question of the different, this key difference between learning and performance. Mm. and performance is what I can measure right now during the learning process in this context, in the presence of the current cues. Learning is the sort of goal of education, mm. and it's reflected by performance at a delay, uh, by, <clears throat> excuse me again, uh, transfer of what's learned to the new situations where it's relevant, and you tend to see this major sort of mismatch that conditions that can make performance um, look really good during practice mm. are not the same conditions that enhance long-term retention and transfer. Yeah. And so 
we label these things at one point desirable difficulties simply meaning that they're difficulties for the learner but they're desirable in terms of the long-term goals mm -hmm. of education and we've had to emphasize over years that the word desirable is important yeah. because there are a lot of ways to make things difficult on um, students that are bad during instruction and bad forever after uh, and also there is a need to kind of titrate things for given students so we mentioned earlier that uh, it's very important if you can to get uh, a student to generate an answer to something rather than giving it to them mm -hmm. but depending on the knowledge that they bring to the class and what they've learned that's relevant already um, how you trigger that generation may vary a lot across students in terms of how many cues and how much support yeah. you have to give a given student. Mm. Uh, so and I don't know what that wants to add to that. <clears throat> that. That's a really important thing, I think, for teachers when, when you know, a lot of the time I hear questions um, that would follow up a statement like the one that you made there about you know, um, uh, uh, desirable difficulties and the creation of them. And then, you know, that being looking quite different for different students. Um, often with something like this, um, you know, we're asked, well, okay, I, I get the idea and I understand it, but tell me how I do it. And, tell, you know, give me the, the sort of template. And I think that then there's, that, uh, you know, that there's a much sort of deeper and nuanced understanding that has to be in place so that then in those circumstances where you've got um, mm. different students with different uh, you know understandings and, and and what have you that you're able to then fall back on a strong kind of theoretical underpinning um, and then and, and and you know use those desirable difficulties in a um, a kind of a more appropriate way for each each person within the class so it's it's kind of it's that one size fits all model doesn't work but then how do you use um, the, the kind of core theory to adapt it to individual students. Yeah, I think that's really important. We often get, well, is there some rules I can follow? And um, I think this is where the creativity and the imagination of the teacher comes into play, that you want to get your students to be generating uh, actively as much as possible. But you may have to give some students more support in doing that, a few more hints, uh, some partial cues and so forth mm. and other than others. And that is where I think, um, you know, the skills of an insightful teacher really come to play. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, um, I was reading something recently about, yeah, um, in fact, that was, it was on a, um, uh, a, a Twitter chat. We have a thing over here called uh, UK Ed Res Chat, where um, teachers talk about uh, the kind of research on certain areas um, that are, you know, that, that pertain to, to what they're, they're doing. And, you know, it, a lot of it came back to, well, you know, what, what's the, the theory that we need to know? In order to be able to act in that, you know, in a in a uh, the context of professionals making decisions and judgments in real time um, that are anchored in strong theory, but then uh, are, are kind of you know uh, well, what's what's the phrase um, uh, faithfully adopted but intelligently adapted to that, that context. Right. Great phrase. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's not mine, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> I'd I'd love to lay claim to it, but it's not mine. Um, okay, so that I think we're, we're starting to develop this this idea then of you know a, a learning being different to to performance, uh, but also this notion of desirable difficulties and the key word being desirable and not just difficult um, as as kind of working together. In, in a in a sort of long run uh, of, of of a student's sort of experience of, of of education, and that that performance idea is perhaps related to uh, sort of short term um, uh, kind of uh, demonstrations of understanding and ability or whatever it might be, but then over that longer run, we're getting into learning as something that is retained over time, but also um, transferable and transferred to different contexts um, as, as, a, as a demonstration of something that truly is kind of embedded and embodied within in somebody. Um, well, I mean, that's right. And it, it's a critical distinction. I mean, if your listeners don't take away anything else from this session, it would be to get clear about that learning performance distinction because the potential to get fooled about whether you've learned or not uh, as a student, say, but also as a teacher, uh, is is really important because, to the degree you interpret um, current performance as a valid measure of learning, you will do all sorts of things wrong uh, as a teacher, as a student managing your own studying, uh, in terms of judgments you make about whether you can stop studying, need to keep studying, what you should study, all of those things uh, are kind of at risk, so to speak, if you interpret your current performance as mm -hmm. learning. And this is one of, this goes back decades, all the way back to research with animals in the 1930s and 40s. Um, it's absolutely fundamental uh, distinction and um, many, many of these cases in this whole body of research on metacognitive processes where people are predicting their own performance, choosing how to study something, rating how effective something is. Uh, you know, now we have this enormous body of results showing where people's judgments are completely at odds <laughs> with what we then see yeah. experimentally. So, um, Getting clear about that one distinction um, really has a, a lot of benefits and a lot of implications for what should and shouldn't be done in, yeah. in instruction. Yeah, no, I, I entirely agree. I, I think it's it's something that should run through um, the, the the core of a teacher's. Uh, professional development from the moment that they step into any form, whatever it is, uh, of, of um, teacher training, and then right the way through their development in, in every aspect of it, whether it's you know subject specific, um, uh, you know it's about math content or whatever it might be, but that that is that that really sort of strong heart of the matter. Um, and I think that you know in in conversations that I have with people about you know what learning is and how it happens, I, I often will say to groups of teachers, um, I've got two questions for you, and the first is, tell me what teaching is. 
And that one's pretty easy, you know, and they'll talk about a set of actions and behaviors and helping students to know new things and to understand things and what have you. And then I follow up and simply say, okay, so if that's what teaching is, what's learning? And things go silent. Yeah. <laughs> Which is good quite worrying. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, I'm really keen then to, uh, to, to kind of know a little bit more about um, the work that your your lab has been um, doing uh, recently, and uh, so I've been reading up a little bit and and talking to um, to Stephanie in your lab um, about the work that's that's currently underway. Um, and uh, actually, the thing that I really like to know about, um, and this is this is perhaps a, a slight departure from some of the things that we've said already about, you know. Um, learning maths and, and, and whatever else, but I hear that you've uh, been studying um, uh, the motor skills that are associated with soccer players taking penalty <laughs> kicks. Um, and I have, I have to say that I, I'm a, um, a fan of soccer. I support um, Sunderland, and, uh, who, uh, which is a, a team here in the northeast of England that I think is, it's fair to say at the moment uh, performing pretty badly. Um, and so I'd love to learn <laughs> um, about about the you know what you've been learning about motor skills associated with soccer players and penalty kicks. Well, this recent work, um, uh, Saskia Giebel and our lab, a grad student, took the initiative to carry out this work. But we've wondered for a long time um, whether experimental work on the importance of variability. That is, there's all sorts of studies showing uh, experiments with young kids showing benefits of having them throw at different targets at different distances rather than the same distance. Mm -hmm. um, a whole body of work. Whether that also might <clears throat> apply to uh, differences in perspective. So we've had a lot of interaction with Lee Waddington in English, uh, in England. He coaches um, the um, kids. Uh, do you remember which of the elite? I think it was sort of middle school age. Oh, uh, what's the name of the exact? I, I think maybe it's. It might be Manchester that he's affiliated with. Okay. I'm sure they're the enemy from your standpoint. <laughs> but in any case. Um, We've had a lot of interactions and he's wondered, does this or that mean that I should do this or that in practice? And uh, we've tried to set up some things that were more like real experiments, but in some cases they've been too successful. Like uh, we suggested that he um, have the kids interleave the different practice drills mm. in soccer you know, interleave the throw-in, interleave penalty kicks and mm. so on, rather than lining kids up <clears throat> and doing blocking. That was so successful in terms of that his assistant coaches thought they were penalizing the kids who didn't get that variability. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so they changed everybody. They took this, the, the kids who were in the so-called control groups or the groups that were just learning the old way and made them all start learning the new way. And so we didn't have any comparisons that we could make. But it was 
very happy with the outcome. And so, I mean, from from your point of view, then, do you, do you think it, it is was there any evidence of a of a Hawthorne effect uh, going on there? It might be. Um, <clears throat> there's always that risk when um, you're talking about something as new and groundbreaking mm. that it'll be better for just that reason. Mm. Um, I don't know. We weren't on site there in England to know how the different things were portrayed. What works against that often is people expect to be taught the way they have been taught. Yeah. And sometimes then they're very ready to think. Very suspicious that, about Yeah, this. that you're sort of crazy to want them mm. to move on to something else before they've really mastered whatever it is. Um, so. Uh, yeah. It does make mm. a, a slightly chaotic looking practice session, I think. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> Which uh, I think kids can be suspicious of and parents can be suspicious of if they happen to be watching. Yeah. That this coach doesn't know what they're doing. Um, <laughs> but uh, it seems to be very effective. And I guess there's some evidence that kids come to enjoy that much bit more. They feel okay. like that, uh, they look more forward to um, practices and even get their yeah. Yeah. no 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 latecomers. They yeah, get Lee, there on time for practice. Lee Waddington them. said we hadn't even thought of that that the kids started to come in early to practice, which surprised okay. us. Okay, I, I should say that as far <clears throat> as the study we did recently here, uh, the issue was a little different. It was does varying the perspective. So, for example take penalty kicking, which we looked at, might, do you profit more from observing, uh, let's say the, the kid or the person in front of you kicking a penalty kick? Or perhaps you would learn something better from having the goalie's perspective. Okay. And so we ran an experiment where- You might I, just say, if you, if you go online and look to see what people do, hmm. uh, everybody does the one perspective. The uh, one kid is kicking from the penalty spot, other kids are <clears> observing <throat> him, and then and then that person stops and another person goes up and mm -hmm. kicks. Yeah, yeah. So they're, they're all lined up and that's the way practice proceeds. And so we had um, the participants in our experiment either um, in addition to their own opportunities to kick, be able to observe uh, someone ahead of them or be behind the goal and observe from that perspective. And we found benefits from being behind the goal. Okay. <laughs> in terms of your own cooking. So you're picking up something from the goalie's perspective that you don't pick up mm. from the kicker's perspective. Mm. And this is interesting in part because, as you know, I think if you go to a practice facility there somewhere in England, uh, they're not having the goalies practice the penalty kicks. No. Or, or the penalty kickers spend time in the goal. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, it kind of violates people's intuitions to do that. But if our results hold up, it looks like you should get that kind of practice. I think that's fascinating. I, I that That's um. I love I love when you encounter results like that that um, I, I kind of they, they sort of stick in the craw you know it, 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 it go against your intuition and and sometimes even just make you think hang on I'd, I'd never even 
considered that you know the position of of or the perspective the the observation were mm-hmm. you know could could affect that um but so i i you know i think that's that's it's that's fascinating stuff and um and personally i have to say as a as a fan of soccer although you know at the moment increasingly um a somewhat disappointed fan of, of soccer I'm, I'm always keen to find um you know e- evidence of effective strategies that might improve um performance in soccer games if only so then i can um either send an email or a tweet or something like that to to um Sunderland football club to advise them on, on something in the vain yeah, hope that it might I mean, improve we're very, we're very curious whether it will hold up that is we we um, this was set up uh, on an open area at UCLA and wasn't exactly the official distance or official goal mm. and so on. So um, there are various ways to follow this up, and we will follow it up. But it is it is very intriguing initially, partly because um, it suggests a lot of things. We're not just talking about you know it's not exclusive to soccer. It should, yeah, indeed. Should, should quarterbacks in American football run pass routes and should the pass or receivers spend some time getting the quarterback's perspective? Amazing. Uh, there's a whole lot of these things. There's some indication, for example, that in American baseball, that catchers as a group are better hitters than you might expect based on uh, other types of analyses. And of course, they're the one position that's getting a different perspective uh, on, yeah. on uh, pitching. Mm. So we don't know how far we'll go, but um, we're very interested in whether uh, not just varying the conditions of practice, but varying your uh, perspective, perspective yeah. might have benefits. And the catcher um, question, is a little more complex in that catchers are also involved in deciding on what the pitch should be. And Mm. so they often know that we've decided on a curveball or a fastball for this next pitch. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas I think the ideal thing would be you have somebody watching the pitcher from the catcher's perspective, but not knowing what kind of pitch Mm -hmm. is coming out. Would that be helpful? And um, in you know then in the future for, but and there are these examples of guys who you know were um, were catchers, but I mean were um, were pitchers and then went on to be great hitters, mm-hmm. uh, like Babe Ruth for example comes to mind, mm-hmm. uh, and maybe maybe part of that was getting that different perspective about being you know or different kinds of practice giving practice being getting practice as at pitching the ball gave him some insights into read better how the pitcher now throwing the ball at him yeah. what they were about to do okay and so what, what's the what are the next steps for this this research and and when when do you think we'll you know we'll know more and you'll be able to say some more things about this we're gonna um try to collaborate with the coach of the UCLA women's soccer team okay. which is a very strong program and mm-hmm. and then uh, look at this if uh, we can get this cooperation right now they're in the middle of their season it makes it a little hard but 
um, to run it on the field. Uh, and there is an issue too of we just had people observe from behind the goal. And perhaps if you actually have some experience being the goalie, you'd pick up even more. Yeah. Because then you you have the responsibility to move and so on. So yes. the other thing is we're working with um, just for good experimental reasons with novice players. Okay. So they were not, you know, if you wanted to work with elite players, um, to probably to see effects of this would need much more extensive practice right. than we give, uh, you know, in an experimental setting. Hmm. So uh, we don't know yet the sense to which it will extend, but uh, it's certainly, these initial results certainly motivate us to keep looking at it. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to, to seeing what, what comes uh, out of that, that future work. Um, and there, there was one other um, thing that I, that I picked up from uh, reading some, some material on your website, um, which was to do with, and, and this is something I have, um, I'm going to say some words and I have no idea what they mean. So here we go. You're working on a project that examines if giving people a test after a small pro-framing tutorial, and I have no idea what a pro-framing tutorial is, um, but before that they, they've learned more material, that this leads to better retention of, of the material to be learned. Um, so could you tell, tell us a little bit about, about that and maybe start just by saying, well, what, what is a pro-framing tutorial? What actually happens? <laughs> I think you're talking about the project that Stephanie is also involved in. The, yeah. Was it with coding? Yes, that's Learning right. Coding? Okay. So, um, well, mostly it means, um, or, or the way that we're using it in that study, is that you're, you, you don't know anything about coding. You, you come into the lesson and you get, um, you get t taught, you get um, taught to do certain maneuvers or certain, uh, like maybe a if-then statement or how do you code that. Mm -hmm. um, I, think they're, I think they're teaching two or three of those. So that would be, you're just sort of getting the very basic sort of uh, tools that you would need to, to code more complicated problems. Then um, some of the people are given a problem to do that involves um, that involves steps that would involve coding maneuvers they can't they haven't learned about yet. Mm -hmm. And they are given some time to work on those. How would you go about um, uh, setting up? a program that would allow you to do whatever this problem sets forth. Okay. And then, but they don't have all the tools necessary, but they do have a few tools. And uh, so they come up with some ideas and it's sort of, and what we're hoping in the process, they're going to realize, oh, I need to do, I, I see, I don't, I need to do, there's a step in here that I don't know how to do, but it would be okay. necessary. Versus people that are just told that in advance, mm. given those necessary. And then it looks like the people who struggle for a while uh, with, with how would I go about solving this problem, but only have part of the techniques mm -hmm. for doing so, 
they then uh, are much more receptive and learn better when they're given okay. the, the lesson on how the on these new tools that they would have needed. And also it seems to transfer to um, that they've gotten gained a sort of higher order understanding of coding and uh, how, you know, how you talk to a computer, so to mm. speak, so to make you, it do what you want. Do you, do you think then that the effect is something to do with um, kind of creating an awareness of the need to learn something? in order to yeah. progress. Yeah, because the broader context for this particular study is work on on pre-questions. That okay. is where where learners are asked questions where they d have yet to study the material that would let them answer those questions. So yeah. um, now a whole body of research shows and, and Elizabeth has done classroom research relevant to this that even if people are doing nothing but sort of making errors and drawing a blank to these questions, it potentiates their subsequent learning. Okay. So trying to answer, trying to draw on what you do know helps you learn uh, when there's a chance to learn later. So uh, there's, a broad, there's a broad context for this research now in terms of, uh, you know, we think questions are important, but, but that they should, you know, a lot of the background is they're after the instruction. Okay. But now we're even seeing evidence that uh, struggling with questions before you have a chance to learn the material seems to have major benefits. And uh, not only for those particular things, but it looks like the benefits go more broad, broadly than that. Hmm. So, so I may be completely barking up the wrong tree here, but does that have uh, any connection to uh, the, the the theory of disuse? Ah, well, there. That's a good question. <laughs> a lot of it in terms of that. Uh, <laughs> I, I think you know exactly how this effect is taking place. Um, we're we, we know you get this advantage hmm. from having a pretest of certain types. Now, not all pretests do this, but you have a, if certain types of pretests. In particular, what we've looked at is uh, competitive multiple choice questions. They then not seem to potentiate your learning both of the correct answer to that multiple choice question, but also learning information associated with all the incorrect alternatives as well. Okay. Uh, Whereas if you proceed it with a cued recall question for which there's only you know one answer mm. uh, that they can't come up with either, um, then they it will uh, potentiate their learning of the answer to that particular question, but it doesn't spread to other related information. Okay. So it there may be um, some. Um, but we're gonna to have to think about this. Well, let me add, let me let me go back to your question because I think we can say something. So, and and in, in answering, actually, it would be really useful just to to say something about uh, what the theory of disuse said. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. So this theory that's guided our research for more than twenty years now, just it distinguishes between storage strength of something 
and that's kind of how interconnected it is with everything else you know and learn. And so <clears throat> something can be very high in storage strength that cannot be recalled uh, at the moment, something from your distant past. Hmm. And storage strength is distinguished um, from retrieval strength, which is a term we use for how accessible something is right now in the current context. It'll be very influenced by recency, the current cues, and yeah. so on. And so what the theory does is <clears throat> propose a relationship uh, between those two things. <clears throat> and so your story strength helps you gain retrieval strength. It helps you slows down the loss. But what we see at any one time is retrieval strength. Hmm. It's performance. It's what indicates performance. But what is often more relevant to learning is how much um, storage strength you may have accumulated as a background. So one thing that can happen in this um, context we're talking about is if I try to answer something where I haven't had the instruction yet, <clears throat> I activate all the relevant knowledge that I do have. Mm -hmm. So. I'm trying, I'm searching, is it relevant to this thing? Is it relevant to that thing? And that then appears to help, help the, um, the mapping process. So in a simpler paradigm, for example, we've shown where we have people learn pairs of associates like uh, uh, to learn that a pair like whale mammals so that later when you get the cue whale, you can remember that that was paired with mammal. Mm -hmm. um, we did a whole body of research that we have people, we, they see the Q word and try to guess. And so, for example, in the whale mammal case, they might guess old ocean, they might guess dolphin, other things like that. Mm. We set these materials up so they're 97% of the time they guess something other than the correct response. Okay. But that then produces better recall later <laughs> than where you just let them spend the whole time studying the whale mammal pair. Okay. So, th so the initial so performance Basically, when they're activating, trying to guess, they're activating their knowledge network having yeah. to do with whale and ocean and this and that. And maybe they activate that it's a mammal, not a fish. Um, that then enhances uh, the mapping uh, the fitting in. So in our context, that would be like, you have done the kind of activation necessary to create greater storage strength for this pair, whale, yeah. mammal. <laughs> and that will lead to better long-term recall than we'll just study in the whale mammal pair, yeah. which, which might create local retrieval strength, but not uh, create the same connections that will support uh, storage strength. So that 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 re, that repeated um, re, retrieval, or, and then the, an increase in retrieval strength uh, increases storage strength. Uh, is that right? And then increased storage strength. How how does how does that? What's the kind of the the, the uh, short version of the relationship between those two things? Well, um, storage strength. Uh, what what's sort of in, let me mention what's intuitive and what's not. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
that that your prior learning and the the interconnections that would constitute storage strength that that helps you learn or or gain retrieval strength hmm. that would be sort of intuitive the better background i have the more when i see what i'm to learn the more it becomes readily available and recallable yeah and the more slowly it will be forgotten that that relationship i think would be intuitive to most people yeah the counterintuitive thing that that is very important and, and it's why the theory predicts a whole array of different experimental results is that the relationship in the other direction is sort of the opposite namely the higher the current retrieval strength the more accessible something is right now the smaller the changes okay. in storage strength so basically if something has made this thing completely available in the retrieval strength sense, you just heard it, you just whatever, yeah. um, getting it again or recalling it immediately will have no effect on storage strength. Yeah. So it, it's that part that, that this asymmetry in the relationship between these two, I mean, roughly retrieval strength corresponds to performance we discussed mm. earlier storage yeah. strength corresponds to learning as we discussed earlier mm. but there's this asymmetric relationship and that leads to a lot of predictions that as i mentioned for more than 20 years we've kept checking oh that implies such and such mm. we better look at that experimentally and often thinking oh that's not much hope for it to come out the way we're talking about it and um and then in fact it's held up and so yeah uh, that so, for example you had a question on there somewhere about um retrieval induced forgetting yeah that was kind of an implication of the theory that uh, looked like uh was unlikely to follow mm. and then uh, that led to a whole line of research yeah now that's again you, you you tap into something i think that's really important there that, that notion of that which is intuitive but then uh you know which which something which the evidence seems to indicate is actually you know perhaps not correct um and how how then uh you know, teachers and school leaders respond to to those things and we've i guess we've seen it in uh you know the literature around um, the use of praise uh, and you know lavishing praise and such like um and and how then you kind of move forwards in kind of acknowledging something that is counterintuitive and then start to you know perhaps try things out and adapt your practice in light of that and particularly with the you know the, the stuff around retrieval practice and you know um uh, delays and and uh, you know and, and the kind of role of disuse in uh, you know, increasing that that storage strength. I think right. a lot of that that seems to have you know really massive implications in schools, not just for what teachers do in classrooms, but then for you know the the design of a curriculum uh, about the you know the pacing of things, about when certain things appear you know during the course of a term or a semester, which then has implications for you know um, assessment uh and then has you know and it kind of rolls and rolls and rolls and and i think that's it's one of the things where you know a lot of schools are really wrangling with now and saying you know okay i'm i i'm i'm on board with this with the evidence i'm kind of convinced by it but then how do i kind of unpick this 
this knotty problem of curriculum and pedagogy and assessment and policies and all that kind of stuff. Pretty hard work, I think. That's right, and it will look sort of crazy. That is, um, you take all of these things seriously, it will lead to kind of an organization and things coming up again and dropping things and coming back and yeah i mean we'll, we, we, it would we take all of these things and think about trying to put them together it, w it would create a, an organization and activities that won't that won't be like what people are used to and uh, you know one broad question is why would we be fooled about uh, so many of these things and and I think something that's in the background is we may not understand how something like uh, the engineering details of a computer or videotape recorder or something but we can kind of understand the logic of it in mm -hmm. terms of things being recorded written on played back and so on and to the degree that we think of human learning and memory sharing some of those properties We'll do everything wrong, you know. That is the, the. I once taught a little seminar where it was kind of uh, the whole organization was how the human learning memory system differs from any sort of videotape recording kind of architecture, and uh, because it's a puzzle to us for a long time, why wouldn't you, years and years of education, why wouldn't a given person simply learn a lot of this by trial and error what works what doesn't work yeah yeah and we see all of these experimental results that people are making the wrong predictions choosing the wrong learning activities and so on it's just kind of a puzzle like why wouldn't you have learned that but i i think uh there's one factor is this we might think we work like some kind of recording apparatus another thing is <laughs> um Present practices can get perpetuated. So if you're you're as a, if you're now teaching or you're a learner, it's easy for you to assume that your teachers knew what they were doing. Yes. <laughs> yes. So you do what they did. Do you know actually um, when, when uh, so I, I was a teacher for um, for ten years. I taught English, and um, and I remember a colleague saying to me one day, you know, just just remember that the way that we all teach is basically the way that we were all taught. And um, and I, uh, you know, early on in my career, I thought, yeah, don't, don't be ridiculous. You know, I am my own person. I'm making my own decisions and what have you. And then increasingly I thought back and I thought, where does all this come from? Why am I doing these things in the way that I'm doing? And so much of it went back to I could think of teachers who, you know, essentially I was in some way replicating, I think. And, you know, working yeah. on the assumption that, you know, what it seemed to kind of work and I enjoyed it and thought it was good and learned some things. Therefore, that must be it. Yeah. yeah. And I think people that uh, succeed in the system, or meaning the old system, the old way of doing things, um, there is less to, I mean, that's they have less motivation to think about, would there have been a better way to go about yeah. learning these things? Than, uh, but I do think it needs, this whole mm -hmm. curriculum issue is so important, and it may mean that the people in charge of deciding what all needs to be covered in a class, they need to sort of rethink this as well because 
maybe introducing some of these desirable difficulties means you will you will not be able to cover quite as much material yeah. but what you do cover is going to be something that is long lasting yeah. and transferable yeah. so maybe that's the much more important objective rather than being able to tick off a list okay we covered yeah. you know <clears throat> Yeah, and and also recognizing that if if you, you go down that route, then um, in in the short term, um, you know, test scores and whatever else probably won't look all that good, and that you know the the kind of messiness of learning um, kind of happens slowly, um, and 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 so you know the implications then for you know accountability and you know monitoring of of student progress and what have you all start to get opened up. Um, and, and, you know, and put into the mix with things like, you know, um, the robustness of the assessment measures that we're using and, the, you know, whether they're truly valid for the, the purposes that we want to use them for. And I think you're right. You know, you start to, you know, open up a can of worms that's pretty big, but probably pretty important to open up. Um, well, one thing, one yeah. thing that makes, uh, I think, in England, instructors, in our experience, have been a bit freer to do things and more receptive. And I think part of that is, um, you know, your system has important criterion tests, so to speak. Yeah. And something that will help performance on that is the key. Whereas a lot of the things in the US, it's kind of class by class, whatever. That's right. Uh, don't have the long-term target. And, yeah. and I think the long-term target helps you do things better. I should also add, because to some degree here, it sounds like we're sitting in the ivory tower and <laughs> pronouncing, pronouncing on teaching. In our experience, uh, it's been amazing to us how innovations we hear about from teachers in their classes that we never would have thought about uh, are, are so impressive. Yeah. And very often, we're able to reframe, you know, why that was so successful in terms of our terms, but I don't think we would have thought of doing it as teachers ourselves. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes where in this country, there have been some success stories where whole schools are struggling and some principal or set of teachers comes in and changes the system, um, we can see why that engage the very processes students need to learn, but whether we would have ever thought about it mm. uh, is very questionable. Well, the particular way. They the way they it. did it and the well, activity they come up with. So uh, I just want to add that that teachers do, they're not just stumbling along doing non-optimal things. They mm. do, <laughs> over time and experience, learn see yeah. activities and so on um yeah well actually i, I can give you a, a, a really great example of um a school that, that we worked with on our um research support partnership um uh, over at uh, in in cheshire here in england um at, at tarpoli high school and um, one of the teachers there he's the head of um humanities and he became really interested in um, uh, retrieval practice um, and, and and but then was kind of thinking well how do I try to test this out and, and see if it's effective and, and you know we kind of guided him through constructing a, a, a little evaluation um, for, for, for the, the purposes of, of looking at the effect of retrieval practice but what he actually came up with was 
um, a, a sort of system whereby at the start of each lesson, just for five minutes at the beginning of each lesson, um, there were um, just a, a few questions that were, were set in every humanities lesson that were kind of stretching back over you know previous terms work and and you know th this sort of went on for I, I don't know a few a few months actually um, and what seemed to happen was you know students kind of got into the habit of knowing that some you know this was coming um, but not knowing exactly what they were going to be asked about um, and it seemed to you know from, from what he said it seemed to be really quite effective in trying to help students to adapt to some of the changes that had happened here in um, in England with regard to uh, qualifications so we'd, we'd moved from a, a situation where people had uh, coursework that they could do uh, ongoing that would contribute to their ultimate you know exam outcomes but then we've moved now to this just only terminal exam uh, model so then then you know you have to be able to um, hold your learning and, and really kind of keep it for the long term and you know and be able to retrieve it so um, that was a really interesting kind of on the ground contextualized use of you know some of the some of your work and 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 the work of others on retrieval practice in action that's just a great example because uh, for any number of reasons and um, one is a lot of work just shows the importance of revisiting things don't drop it and in fact is um, you know a whole other line of research we've been involved in is is called directed forgetting cues that mm. that something's no longer relevant and can be forgotten well it turns out that non-cumulative quizzes and exams can act like that so <laughs> if this if this quiz is on the material up to this point and now I won't be tested on that again we'll move on to other topics yeah indications that that acts very much like a forget instruction mm. but the the example you gave is in some ways doing just the opposite you keep thinking back and trying to integrate and uh, you know that, that everything we would know suggests that that um, what was happening in that English class would produce far better long-term learning and understanding. Just yeah. that little thing at the start of each of each class. Yeah, yeah. It was it, for for me. It was really interesting to see how, you know, taking from this you know, massive body of research on memory, then on retrieval, and what have you, that um, you know, a teacher in a school could then bring all this down to say, right, here's what it looks like in a classroom, um, and, and then managed to organize with a group of teachers to do this in that way that was, you know, faithfully adopting and intelligently adapting. And it was, it was really, really, you know, really quite inspiring, actually, to, to see that. Um, and it's, it's why it's so important for um, kind of researchers like us to interact with teachers. I mean, in our interactions, for example, with Will Emony, who we mentioned in his mathematics, mm. he saw implications and ways to do things I just think would not have occurred to us. <laughs> yeah, we haven't we haven't been in the trenches the way he has yeah. in, in early mathematics education. So there's the potential for um, for um, researchers like us and for teachers yes. in the school to have a kind of partnership because there can be there can be insights on each side that you just wouldn't get if you only experience the one context so yeah. 
um, some of that is really pretty exciting. Hmm. And uh, I know you have to wrap up soon. So. Yes. Yes. Um, have you? Uh, are you okay for a few more minutes? We can take a few more. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, so I've got uh, just two two more questions really that I, I want to ask ask you that uh, kind of go outside of just uh, specifically you know your work and the work of your your lab. Um, and and the first I want to I want to address something that you know it's is asked about a lot and it's to do with the connection between neuroscience and psychology and education and um, over here at the, the University of Bristol um, Paul Howard Jones um, who's a professor of, of neuroscience and education there he's, he's written about this kind of field of study dedicated to the interaction between neuroscience and education and you know something that's often called um, educational neuroscience amongst other names and and really, um, the question I think that that um, I get asked most about this is, well, you know, what's the role um, that cognitive psychology can play in ensuring that education is enhanced by neuroscience and not misled by it? And and even perhaps more basically than that, you know, what can we learn right now from neuroscience? What should teachers be, you know, paying attention to, if anything, or is it just too nascent for it to be? you know, really, uh, you know, useful uh, for teachers to spend their time thinking about? Well, I think it is um, too early to get, you know, real excited about um, imaging and other techniques, you know, mm -hmm. showing us the absolute answer to some of these questions. Um, long term, obviously, it becomes critical, critically important, but uh, right now, if you look at the work of uh, cognitive neuroscientists, uh, where the work is relevant to education, uh, the most exciting work in, in coming out of laboratories is where people are, researchers are combining the kind of behavioral research we do with some imaging research. Mm -hmm. Namely, it's that back and forth. and. Uh, individuals like Daniel Schachter at Harvard and, and other researchers who um, have sort of a background in basic behavioral cognitive science work hmm. are using, this is from our perspective anyway, they're using imaging techniques in a more productive and diagnostic way. Okay. Um, I mean, right now, um, I don't think there's a specific thing that um, you could point to the coming from uh, neuroscience work that tells you exactly how to teach a given subject. I mean, ultimately, it could be. But I think when these things are combined, if you have the relevant behavioral research and can then look in a really focused way at imaging research, because one problem, I mean, the, the work in neuroscience gets criticized because it does have this character of uh, let's see what lights up. <laughs> and, and even some work with animals early on showed that um, in certain tasks, the area that lit up most experimentally, uh, some part of the brain could be removed and that area removed and the animal could still learn the task. Okay. So, um, or, or it can it can leave if you just look at the neuroscience results, you can be deceived. Mm. Uh, so 
So, for example, in the study with the inner, I'm thinking of the interleaving study, where they had people learning things in an interleaved manner or in a blocked manner. Hmm. And they found that there was a lot more activity going on in the interleaving. Now, if you interpret that as difficulty, and so this is not, and so, and there's less activity, so they must be learning better in the blocking. Mm -hmm. uh, but then when they tested the people later, the parts of the brain that had been so active during interleaving were now less so in part because they had learned better. Thank and so, you know, they were able to perform better, yeah. but that wasn't reflected in lots and lots of activity. Huh. It was reflected by less activity okay. in that area during the test. Now, this was a little, this was kind of a relatively, it was a visual spatial task tapping out sequences. Hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, it, it exactly as Elizabeth said, that during training, um, the it looked like there were more demands, the interleave, the interleaving the different sequences to be learned um, created more activity, more kind of stress on the system. But then okay. on the long term test, uh, people not only did behaviorally better, but at that point, during the time of test, there was less activity if you'd had earlier had the uh, okay. practice. So that that one, but again, it also illustrates that in order to gain that control and precision and to keep people doing things in the scanner, they had to come up with a task that kind of immobilized the person and yeah, just yeah. use one one hand to tap out a sequence okay. of things. But, but I mean, ultimately, I think there's good reason for excitement about it. Yes. Um, right now, it's a bit of a stretch, and 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 some of us think that uh, you know who are doing the behavioral research think too much of the research monies. You know uh, what it costs to support one imaging lab would support an, an enormous amount of research in uh, mm. a classroom or a, a behavioral lab. So right. there's that sort of question as well. Yeah. Yeah. So in essence, then, you know, neuroscience is there's lots of excitement, lots of promise, but we perhaps need to just be patient. Yes. Yes. OK. OK. So final question then. And uh, bearing in mind that, um, you know, uh, teachers will be be listening to this um, and we've covered a, hu a huge um, array of, um, you know, research findings and your work and the work of others there. But, um, you know, uh, what if, if we were to offer just some some really kind of clear tips to teachers um, based upon you know what you know from from your from your own work and that of others you know what would those what would three top tips be for classroom practice that you'd offer to, to teachers listening today sure sorry you want me to go first why don't you go first <laughs> okay uh, <laughs> well i think first of all they should be keep in mind this distinction between performance and learning mm -hmm. uh, and one way to ensure that uh, they're actually teaching their producing learning in their students is to incorporate a lot of these they can be very quick uh, little quizzes mm -hmm. or sometimes we call them as low, low stakes testing mm -hmm. and then uh, revisiting is a very important thing if you have some concept that you think is very important you want to come back to it 
yeah. in future lessons. And, uh, and if you can come back to it in a different context, mm -hmm. that's even better. As long as the context, you know, eventually students see, okay, we're still talking about the process of osmosis or something. Yeah. It's just in a different, uh, with different uh, situation. So, um, so I think. Yeah, I think that's, the, those are good points. And uh, in kind of almost another category, I would make a couple other recommendations. One is, uh, establish a very good relationship with your school principal and <laughs> to the degree you can with your parents. Uh, that's an obstacle we see in this very often is people see really insightful ways to apply some of this research and then in the next breath say that they can't do that because yeah. uh, they won't be going over the standards in a certain order or whatever mm -hmm. and their, their pr principal won't like them. So they're there needs to be support for teachers. And also, uh, I think uh, this can happen more readily in England than maybe here is a, for uh, a teacher needs to keep their eyes on the prize, so to speak. Yep. Namely, where they're, it, it, it's long term. What, what do they take away? What do they know on some final criterion or assessment test? And that don't get caught up in, uh, short-term grading, short-term assessment, and so on. That is um, to just keep clear that what you want to maximize are these long-term retention, long-term transfer. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and really, to some degree, when you think of it that way, uh, I remember once in my own teaching, just it dawned on me that students have so much going on that from my cognitive psychology class, if a year later they remembered four or five things, well, <laughs> that was an achievement. Well, yeah. once that idea occurred to me, I thought, okay, if that's a fact of life, what can I do to make, what, what, what are yeah. the half dozen most important things that no matter where they go in their life, they're going to need to remember that. What are they actually? Yeah. And if those are the right things, then what can I do to say that, a year or two from now, they will have that as sort of part of their arsenal, so to speak. Mm, yeah. And it changed my teaching some. And, and so I think, I think that's something for teachers to face up to, too. They are not, uh, there's something called the curse of knowledge, which is, you know, that you, you, things seem obvious to you, they seem important to you, and so on once you know it. But you have to step outside that and think, for my students, what sort of concepts, ideas are going to be important mm. long term, no matter what they do. Yeah. And then those things, and it fits in with what Elizabeth mentioned, maybe really we should, in typical course, should cover fewer things, mm. but do it a lot better. And, uh, but again, you, you have to as Bob said, you have to form this, you have to form a relationship with your principal that, or whoever's in charge of, you know, at the administrative level of your yeah. school, that, uh, that, that you can do this, that yeah. this is, that in the long term, this is, will accomplish much more learning 
than some of the practices that we're now engaging in. Yeah, and you've got to have that uh, initially a permission to innovate um, and to then subsequently, you know, to, to change. And um, but then also at some point to kind of stabilize things and to say, well, you know, we, we now have we know something about what seems to be more effective and it may look uh, you know, uh, unlike that which we thought was going to be effective in the in the first instance, you know, to, to have that kind of counterintuitive uh, thing sitting very, very uh, firmly, uh, it, it, you know, in front of us as, as we were kind of making decisions about curriculum and such like that actually the counterintuitive may be correct. That's a yeah. good summary right yeah. there. Yeah. Well, thank you.